improving the quality of life and careers for women soldiers. That's the goal of a new Army advisory group advocating for them. The Women's Initiative team will hold its first meeting in August. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr joins me with details. And Alex, let's begin with why is there a need for another group to advise about women's issues in the Army? It's an interesting question, Tom, because the services do come up with initiatives to support women. Last year, the Army issued a directive that addressed issues for pregnant and postpartum women that delayed physical fitness tests for a year after a woman had had a baby and eased up some travel possibilities for them, too, so they wouldn't have to travel right after having a baby. And actually, one of the inspirations for both that directive and this women initiative team is a Facebook group called the Army Mom Life. And a young sergeant started this group, and it really caught on with people. There were a whole lot of women following it on Facebook, commenting not on it, getting support from it. And that idea got to some of the uh, top brass in the Army, and it was suggested that they start this group. Here's Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army, Jeffrey Angers, who's one of the tri-chairs of this group. You know, the Army, as you realize is, I'll call it, dominated at least in numbers um, by men. I think it's about 16% of the total force is women, or the active force, I should say, are women. So I think there are times where when we develop policies and procedures, while we we try to consider the unique um, circumstances of our women soldiers, we don't always do a great job doing it. All right, that's what a high-level guy says about it, but what is the makeup of the group? I presume there's some women connected to it too, right, Alex? (laughs) That's a good point, Tom. There are actually three chair people. Angers is one, and then there's a general officer and a sergeant major. Both of them actually are female. Uh, Last December, they asked people to apply to be on this team, and they got over 800 applications. They they filled 30 seats for the start in August, and they're coming from all across the Army. There's National Guard component, active duty, reserves— And so all across the service, plus some civilians. Here's what Jeffrey Angers had to say about it. If you look at what our membership is, and it's representatives from junior enlisted soldiers all the way up to more senior officers. And I I think our our initial plan going in is we'll develop working groups. And the WIT as a group will decide what are the priorities they want to work on with help and guidance from both the MNRA and the tri-chairs. But I think... Our expectation is that some of these initiatives will span um, the entire spectrum that you that you address. And do they have an agenda yet? Because, Alex, you said they started out as a Facebook group, or that's what inspired it, moms in the Army or that idea. So is it mostly about family life or is it mostly about soldier life or what's the initial thinking for this group? I asked that question, and it seems to be two-pronged. One is definitely women's health issues and women's quality of life issues. One interesting story Mr. Angers told me is that they talked about having a no-salute zone outside of child care centers. Because if you're a, an Army mom and you've got your baby carrier and you've got your diaper bag, you don't want to have to be saluting someone as you walk in. And drop the baby. And drop the baby. Uh, the other issue which they plan to get into is career paths. And so it's sort of younger women maybe have more concerns about child care and and young children, and maybe older women who are mid-career have more questions and and more issues to resolve involving career paths. And while while what their agenda will be is still open, they're planning on looking at all of those kinds of issues. Here's Jeffrey Angers. We really want this to be a grassroots effort. 
which allows folks and representatives, as they said, from across the Army to help us identify the issues that are important to them and do everything from identify these initiatives, conduct the analysis, make the recommendations to Army senior leadership on what they think should change in the Army. And he points out what I think is a little bit of a danger for this group because it was grassroots. It was Facebook. People felt honest and they could express themselves freely. Once something gets elevated to an official Army advisory group, you become part of the Army bureaucratic process. And that could maybe work against the spontaneity they need to come up with things. So what happens to this group after they do have an agenda? How's it going to work next? That's a great question. And what he was telling me is that they have enough senior sponsorship on the program that these ideas aren't just going to fall into a hole someplace like like the Lost Ark in Indiana Jones. They're actually going to go up the chain of command and be turned into policy, and they'll get the secretary involved when they need to. Angers brought this up in the interview. So we will develop these recommendations. We will develop, I'll call it decision packages for senior leadership where we make the recommendations. These will be, you know, go through the ASA MRA where she will obviously have the, the opportunity to provide her input and then it will go to senior leadership depending on what level of approval we will need. All right. So it's going to meet in August and the membership has been named. And just to be clear, this is about Army soldiers who are women and not military spouses necessarily who are women. This group is directed specifically at Army soldiers, and the people on the board will serve about two years. They can be extended at the discretion of the chairman, but the idea is kind of to bring in a group, get some fresh ideas, and then maybe rotate them out after a couple years. Because the Army has a persistent, maybe not a giant problem, but a persistent one, and it's certainly big enough to those that get involved, and that is sexual harassment, sexual assault occurring in the Army. And uh, the IG recently pointed out that they have many studies of this pro of this issue, but not a lot of action has come out of it. Did did you get the sense that that topic, sexual assault, sexual harassment, will be part of this group? I asked about that, and what Mr. Anger said is that it very well could be, and if they they feel like they can maybe get some something done in that, they'll definitely address it. But that that is a sharp issue, and it has its own channel for addressing that as sure. well. So this will be more quality of life issues, like you say, saluting when you're holding a baby and coming out of a daycare center. Well, you know, maybe that's not so important to the readiness and composure and uh, discipline of the Army. Right. Things that you sort of are uniquely women's issues that they might have a perspective on that someone else might not notice. Well, we want the best for everyone who serves. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a um, 
uh, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm 
about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. 
you want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way that's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.